Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this episode, Father Adam covers paragraphs 2052 to 2141, Intro to the Ten Commandments and the First Commandment. Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful. Grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ, our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So we're continuing um, part three of the catechism, which is um, the um, life in Christ, which is the morality section. We've gone through the introduction, which dealt with the, the dignity of the human person, the social teaching of the church, and then the, um, the law, law and grace. So those are like the three beginning points. The rest of the catechism deals with the Ten Commandments. And like the other parts of the um, catechism, you know, each part is partially beginning principles. And then the second part um, of each of those parts, the second ha- half, sometimes it's three-fourths of the part, um, deals with one of four things. So in the first one, it was the creed. Um, the first part. The second was the seven sacraments. The third one then will be the Ten Commandments. And the fourth one will be, it's on prayer, and the kind of the, the chief component is the Our Father. So, in a sense, catechesis is summarized in the creed, the seven sacraments, the um, Ten Commandments, and the Our Father. Those are sort of the, if, if you want, kind of like the, 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 um, the pedag- you know, the pedagogy of the church, that we use these four, these four things as sort of a good summary to start with. So the catechism, before it launches into the Ten Commandments, it um, starts, it, it gives an explanation, sort of an intro to what the Ten Commandments are. Um, of course, we find them in Exodus 20, chapter 22 through 17, and also in Deuteronomy chapter 5, 6 through 21. So those are the two scriptural sources for the Ten Commandments. The Catechism frequently refers to the Ten Commandments as the Decalogue, which just means ten words. So we start in 2052, uh, paragraph 2052. And, of course, we want to make Christ the center of our catechesis um, and of our faith and of our morality and everything. So, rather than launching into the um, either Exodus or Deuteronomy, the catechism begins with that story in Matthew chapter 19 um, where Christ encounters um, the rich young man. Um, the rich young man 
is asking what he should do to follow the Lord. And the Lord tells him, um, first of all, to that, you know, how am I good? How can someone be good? The Lord says, first of all, um, there is only one who is good, you know, in himself, God. Um, God is the source of all good. He's the source of goodness. So it is a reminder um, that in our striving to grow in holiness and in goodness, um, we're faced with the reality that as creatures, we will never be as good as God himself, who is pure good. Which, you know, I don't don't think should, um, it should actually relieve us in some sense, you know, to know that the only one who is good is God himself. The second is from that story with the rich young man is that the Lord um, first tells the rich young man to keep the commandments, to keep the Ten Commandments. Um, But finally then the Lord sums up all these commandments by saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, um, you know, the summary of of those commandments is to love your neighbor as yourself. We've we've heard that quite a bit in the Gospels. But the conversation doesn't end there. And and that's the idea is that it is not just sufficient to observe the Ten Commandments. Um, as daunting as that task might be to live the Ten Commandments and all that they entail, all that Christ has kind of revealed to us that they entail, um, even though that seems daunting and impossible, there is a, a minimalism that can be um, can be brought in. You know, not just reading the Ten Commandments in a very narrow thing that you know, like for instance, um, "Thou shalt not kill." Well, I haven't murdered anyone, so therefore, that one's fine. You know, I've got that one in control, which of course is not what the Lord is saying in the Gospels. Um, there's also, and, it, and I think it's coupled with that point that the Lord makes it only God is good, and then he says follow the commandments. But then the story doesn't end there, because there is this temptation in our observance of the commandments to think that we can be as good as God, and that we can somehow do it just by our sheer observance of these Ten Commandments. Um, and and that's of course that slides into the danger of Pelagianism, um, this heresy that somehow we can save ourselves, um, or that our works will somehow save us. So that's when the Lord then um, checks the rich young man, and in paragraph 2053, the Catechism tells us. Um, that if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. This reply, the Catechism says, does not do away with the with the commandments, but what it does is that it firmly focuses the commandments as the way that we follow Jesus Christ. That following Jesus Christ involves keeping the commandments. So therefore, the law has not been abolished, but rather man is invited to rediscover it in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the perfect fulfillment of the commandments.
So we're we're recentering on Christ. The Ten Commandments are are we need to kind of see them within the context of following Christ, and that it is in our union with Christ. And we've talked about the sacraments in the last part, but by our union with Christ, it is how we live the Ten Commandments, how we're going to live and be able to live the Ten Commandments. Um, a couple other little points in paragraph 2055. Um, we're reminded that the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, must be interpreted in light in light of the twofold yet single commandment of love, to love God with all of our heart and being and to love our neighbor as ourself. This is going to be reiterate, reiterated again and again and again um, throughout this um, the sec- section two, which deals with the Ten Commandments. Um, the Decalogue literally means, this word Decalogue literally means ten words. Um, beginning, although they are found in the Old Testament, um, they are also in the New Covenant in Jesus Christ that their full meaning will be revealed. So they're initially revealed to us in the Old Testament through Moses in both Exodus and Deuteronomy. Um, but it's ultimately in Christ that we see fully what they mean, what these t- Ten Commandments. And ultimately we could say it's because Jesus is the one who teaches us what it means to be human and how to be human. But we also have to understand the Ten Commandments, paragraph 2057. We have to understand them in the context of Exodus, where God liberates the people of Israel, the Hebrews, from slavery. So we read them as a liberation. Now we can read the Ten Commandments, and I think the contemporary human person is, is tempted to read the Ten Commandments as if they're binding us. You know, like we're being enslaved, that God is telling us, you have to do this, you have to do this, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this. But really we need to understand that um, the Ten Commandments are revealed in the context of being freed from slavery, in the sense that they're a pathway, they're instructions on how to live in freedom, authentic freedom. Paragraph 2059, the uh, gift of the commandments is a gift of God himself and his holy will. And making his will known, God reveals himself to his people. Um, So the idea then that the uh, Ten Commandments aren't just um, kind of an invitation to live our freedom, but they also reveal something about God himself. Um, They also should be seen within the context of the covenant, that the, the Ten Commandments only make sense because we are somehow united in this covenant with God himself. Um. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is never handed on without first recalling the covenant. I think this helps us to understand um, that in order for us to live the Ten Commandments, in order for them to make sense to someone, there first has to be that relationship with God himself, um, or else they make no sense. Then um, there are two really important paragraphs um, that I think build on this, 2062 and 2063. 
first, the commandments properly so-called come in the second place in the second place. They express the implications of belonging to God through the establishment of the covenant. Moral existence is a response to God's loving initiative. It is the acknowledgement and homage given to God and a worship of thanksgiving. It is cooperation with the plan of God that God pursues in history. So we think of the Ten Commandments as the first thing that's necessary. I observe the Ten Commandments, then I can have a relationship with God. But first, God has loved us, which then enables us to live the Ten Commandments. They are a response. And this is the whole structure of the catechism, that um, God reveals himself. This is symbolized by the creed. And our response is symbolized in the sacraments, in the Ten Commandments, and in prayer. Um, so we want to see the commandments as a response because God has first loved us. We're there, we therefore respond to that love. The, um, so therefore, in order for us to follow the commandments, we're going to need to have this subjective acceptance of God's love. In all the God's commandments, the singular personal pronoun designates the recipient. God makes his will known to each person, to each of us, in particular. At the same time, he makes it known to the whole people. So the Ten Commandments, this idea that, you know, we, we hear, I am the Lord, your God, you shall not do this, you shall not do that, you shall do this, in the case of the Fourth Commandment. So, God himself reaches out to us. He commands each of us individually. But he also has revealed this to the larger nation. But the commandments themselves are a personal response um, that each of us make to, this, to the Lord who has revealed himself, who has reached out to us. Now, one of the big questions that arises is the numbering of the Ten Commandments. And the Catechism explains really the origin for the, under, for the numbering of the commandments. If you're well aware, um, Catholics have one numbering which splits the coveting commandments, nine and ten together. Nine and ten become, they're separate while Protestants unite those two and separate, I believe, the first commandment. Um, so what's the origin of this? Well, our numbering, the Catholic numbering, comes from St. Augustine. Um, the Lutherans follow the same numbering system, or at least the, we should say the traditional, um, traditional Lutherans, more traditional Lutherans. The Greek fathers worked out a slightly different division. Now, that's what the Orthodox follow, but it's also what the Reformed Christians. So that would be um, basically um, Presbyterians, most kinds of Baptists, those kinds. They, and even the Anglicans went with that, um, that, that other forming, which is from the Greek fathers. Essentially, um, they're the same commandments, um, 
However, we follow the ordering of St. Augustine. The first three commandments concern love of God, while the other seven concern love of neighbor. The um, Council of Trent has said that all Christians are obliged to live by the commandments. That doesn't seem to be too new, but it was at least at the time of the Council of Trent somewhat radical. Because of this idea, there's, a, I think, an error which was prevalent at the time of the Reformation, but I think is still kind of prevalent now, is that really the Ten Commandments are just part of the Mosaic Law and they no longer buy us, bind us. Um, we call that antinomianism or an, anti-law. Um, that basically there is nothing, no, no moral obligation placed upon me now in Christ. We want to see that the, all of the sacraments in some way are united. They're united in that great commandment of love. While the Ten Commandments are revealed by God, they are nonetheless part of the, they reflect the natural law, that sort of moral law that's built on our hearts as human beings, following our human nature. To attain, though, a complete and certain understanding of the requirements of the natural law, um, our humanity needed this revelation. We've hit upon this point quite a bit that you know, although we believe in the natural law that human beings by their nature should know right and wrong, should know moral truth, we need the help of revelation because of the fall. Now, um, I think 20, in addition to um, paragraphs 2062 and 2063, the next ones, 2072 and 2073, are really important um, and this deals with that topic that I've brought up a couple times called parvity of matter. So is there lighter matter and graver matter? How do we kind of distinguish the gravity of the matter, of the act, of the object? So 2072 says, Since they, the Ten Commandments, express man's fundamental duties towards God and towards his neighbor, they reveal in their primordial content grave obligations. So, in, in their version as, as proposed in the Old Testament, they um, reflect grave matter. They reflect grave matter. Which is why, you know, when the Catechism defines mortal sin and it defines what grave matter is, it says what, is, what violates the, the Ten Commandments as taught by, to the young, rich young man, which we heard from Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so it, it, does not, it wants us to kind of reflect on the Ten Commandments in general as they stand, as revealed to Moses in Exodus and Deuteronomy, as grave matter. However, 2073, obedience to the commandments also implies obligations in matter, which is in itself light. Thus, abusive language is forbidden by the fifth commandment. 
but would be a grave offense only as a result of circumstances or the offender's intention. And it's in paragraph 2073 that we get this parvity of this idea of parvity of matter. So certain commandments um, can imply they imply an obligation, but that obligation may not be grave. It may be light, a lighter matter. And how do we determine, determine it? Well, the, the circumstances surrounding it and the offender's intention. Now, the infend, offender's intention is really distinct from the object itself, but it, it can, as we've seen in other acts, make something good um, bad or make something bad worse. So it can't, of course, make something bad good. And then the paragraph uh, 2074 for this intro to the Ten Commandments, it ends just simply reminding us that it's Christ who enables us to live the Ten Commandments. So that amidst the struggles that happen, it's the ten, it's Christ himself who enables us to live this struggle, to live the Ten Commandments. Now, uh, what we're going to continue then today is with the first and the second and even into the third commandment. Now, that it may seem like a lot, but um, our treatment is a little, you know, they're not huge commandments. What we'll probably do is just focus on the first and the second commandment. So the first commandment is, and we'll read both the uh, Deuteronomy, the text from Deuteronomy, and the text from Exodus. Um, so, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. In Matthew uh, chapter 4, verse 10, we hear, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So those, that's the first commandment. We can break it up into really three parts. The first one is, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The second is, him only shall you serve. And then the third is, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, we should also um, maybe add a fourth too, um, and that is what we mean by this phrase, what the Lord means by this phrase, you shall not make for yourself a graven image. So we let's let's say there are four parts um, to the to this first commandment. So first of all, um, God's first call and just demand is that man accept Him and worship Him. This is the first command that we accept God and worship Him. If you remember at the beginning of the catechism, God man seeks God, God reveals Himself, and man responds in faith this submission of self. Um, so the first commandment is to accept God, in a sense to submit to God and to worship him. 
So man's vocation, then, is to make God known by acting in conformity with his creation in the image and likeness of God. So one of the ways that we submit to God, that we accept God, is to live according to his plan for what it means to be human, how he has made us in his image and likeness. But it also, in this accepting of God and worshiping him, in the acceptance of God, entails embracing three things, the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. So when we reflect on this commandment, first of all is, um, are we? do we have faith, do we have hope, do we have charity? Now we know that those are theological virtues, which means that God gives them to us, but do we act against them, contrary to them? So the Catechism explains for us how we might act against faith. There is um, faith, you know, should be nourished and protected with prudence and vigilance. And we should reject everything which is opposed to it. The Catechism distinguishes voluntary doubt versus involuntary doubt. So voluntary doubt is when um, we disregard or refuse to hold true to what God has revealed through the church. Involuntary doubt would be a hesitation in believing, a difficulty in overcoming an objection connected with the faith, or an anxiety aroused by its obscurity. The sin, the violation, we might say, of the first commandment is more in the case of voluntary doubt. The Catechism says, if deliberately cultivated, doubt can lead to blind spiritual blindness. So everyone has involuntary doubts about the faith. At times there are things that we have to struggle with that we don't fully understand, that we might even get anxious about because it's not clear in our minds. Um, as long as we're trying to figure those out and work with the Lord and um, kind of grow in our understanding of the faith, that's, that's normal. In fact, it really strengthens our faith in some ways. It's when we fall into a deliberate cultivation of doubt. So we're deliberately cultivating it um, by refu- maybe refusing to hold on to a truth um, or refusing to accept it as true, something which has been proposed by the church. So the response, the kind of practical spiritual response is to accept it as an element of truth and then begin the wrestling, the struggling to come to understand it. But I think the response to doubt is an affirmation that, yes, this is true because this is what has been revealed or this is what the church teaches. then the wrestling can continue. Um, There's also incredulity, which is the neglect of revealed truth or the willful refusal to assent to it. There is heresy, which is the obstinate post-baptismal denial of some truth, which must be believed with the divine and Catholic faith. There's apostasy, 
which is the total repudiation of the Christian faith, schism, which is the refusal to submit to the Pope or to, um, to communion with the members of the church sub subject to him. So those are all violations of faith. Um, there's also the, the virtue of hope. Um, and the Catechism gives a really rich, beautiful understanding in 2090 of hope. Um, oftentimes, I think out of the three theological virtues, hope is the one most difficult for us to understand. And so I think 2090, paragraph 2090 is really good to help us to understand what hope is. So when God reveals himself and calls him, man cannot fully respond to the divine love by his own powers. He must hope that God will give him the capacity to love him in return and to act in conformity with the commandments of charity. Hope is the confident expectation of divine blessing and the beatific vision of God. It is also the fear of offending God's love and of incurring punishment. Um, so it gives kind of a richer understanding um, that, you know, it, first of all, it's an openness for God, you know, to help us to believe in him more, to love him more, um, and to live according to charity. Um, it's also an expectation of the divine blessings and of eternal life, the beatific vision. And, interesting enough, um, hope also includes a fear, a certain fear of offending God and incurring punishment. So how do we violate hope? Well, by despair, um, especially ceasing in our hope for personal salvation. Um, there's also presumption, and there are two kinds of presumption. Either that we presume on our own capacity, hoping to be able to save ourselves, or we presume upon God's almighty power and his mercy, hoping to obtain forgiveness without a real genuine conversion. And then charity, charity of course, um, is this is this share in divine charity, divine love, him, divine love? Um, the first commandment enjoin us to love God above everything and all creatures, all creatures, um, for Him and because of Him. So a violation of this charity is indifference, which is a neglect or refusal to reflect on God's love for us. Ingratitude. Um, a lukewarmness or a hesitation in responding to divine love. Acedia, which is a very popular word nowadays. A lot of people like to use it. Acedia or spiritual sloth. Um, now the catechism says that spiritual sloth um, goes so far as to refuse the joy that comes from God and to repel by divine goodness. So some people um, define acedia as just merely like a laziness, a slothfulness in that sense towards spiritual things that, you know, I'm too lazy to pray or I'm too lazy to go to mass or I'm, you know, too lazy to think about God. But really, um, acedia in its, in its most pr proper sense is really um, kind of a not taking 
enjoyment or fulfillment or satisfaction in the things of God. You know, I'm almost repulsed by doing these things that um, I don't find in them the source of my happiness and meaning. Um, and then certainly a hatred of God which can come about by pride. So that explains this idea of um, you shall worship the Lord your God and you shall serve him alone. This idea of accepting God, which is the first command, first part of the first commandment. The second is um, that him only shall you serve, which really deals with the worship part. So the first commandment on the one, accept the Lord your God and then worship the Lord your God. So, in, in this serving of the Lord, first, there must be the act of adoration. It is the first act of the virtue of religion. The virtue of religion, remi- we're reminded, is a form of justice in which we give God his due. What is due to him? What is due to him? Well, first, it's adoration, which is defined to acknowledge him as God, as creator and savior of everything that exists as infinite and merciful love. So when we think of adoration, we think of um, exposition of the Blessed Sacrament, where we come before Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, present on the, on the altar, in the monstrance, or even in the tabernacle still. Um, and that is an act, we, say, we call it adoration because it is an act of adoring, which is ultimately at its heart an acknowledging of Jesus Christ as God and what he has done for us. So the very simple act of adoring the Blessed Sacrament is adoration, which means a recognition that Jesus Christ is present and he is God. The worship of the one God sets us free from turning in on ourselves. And this is the great danger, and this is why worship is and adoration is so important, is it refocuses us back on God rather than on ourself. And with it, that slavery to sin and the idolatry of the world. So again, if we see the commandments in the context that these were given to the human race at the point when the Hebrews were released from slavery, It reminds us that by worshiping God alone, it frees us from something. It frees us from the slavery to ourselves and the slavery to sin. Prayer also is a necessary part of living this commandment. Um, There's a good definition given to us in paragraph 2098. Prayer is an indispensable condition for being able to obey God's commandments. It is a lifting up the mind toward God in an expression of our adoration of God. It includes praise and thanksgiving, intercession and petition. When we do when we cover the fourth part of the catechism, which is all on prayer, that small little paragraph is going to be exp- you know, kind of expanded into several hundred paragraphs. But at its root is this idea of the lifting up of ourselves to God in in adoration. So then 
sacrifice is also a necessary part of this. It is a sign of adoration and gratitude, of supplication and communion. But outward sacrifice, to be genuine, must be an expression of spiritual sacrifice. In serving the Lord also, there are promises and vows which are taken throughout the human life. Promises include the promises of our baptism, of confirmation, of marriage, matrimony, and holy orders. Many people ask the difference with the difference between a promise and a vow. The catechism, um, it doesn't so much distinguish, it does distinguish them. Um, so a promise is, is um, you know, a more basic fundamental thing. A vow is defined as a deliberate and free promise. So it's a type of promise, a vow is made to God concerning a possible and better good which must be fulfilled by reason of the virtue of religion. So it's, it's in a sense forsaking one thing for a greater thing. So when we think of those vows, we most often think of the evangelical counsels that religious take of poverty, chastity, and obedience. So they're forsaking the good of marriage in order to take on this vow. They're forsaking um, the good of property in order to take on poverty. They're forsaking the good of their own free will and their own decision, you know, in a sense decision-making out of op for obedience to their superior. But those vows are ultimately made to God himself as as we as we hear, they are uh, a free promise made to God. There's also um, built into this idea of of serving God is the public duty of religion and the right of freedom of religion. So, all of us, every human being, must seek the truth. That's one way in which we serve the Lord, is to seek the truth. We also um, have a, a duty, really, as Christians, um, to respect, but also to awaken in each person a love for God and for the good. And so we have a certain requirement to witness, we might say, both in public worship but also um, in living our faith. The Catechism also talks about in this section on the freedom of, of religion. It does say in 2107 that a particular state may recognize a particular religion as the state religion as long as they also entail um, ensure freedom of religion. So there are certain countries, I mean, you know, for instance, United Kingdom, where the Church of England or the Church of Scotland, the Church of Wales, um, the Church of Ireland are the official religion of the state, and they receive certain financial help, you know. Um, their, their leadership are, for the most part, appointed by, you know, by the government. But 
nonetheless, there is still freedom of religion there. Um, the right to religious liberty is neither a moral license to adhere to error nor a supposed right to error, but rather a natural right of the human person to civil liberty. Um, there may be limits, nonetheless, to the freedom of religion. Um, and this is, tw paragraph tw 2109 is, um, it's, a, it's a very technical paragraph and, and perhaps unnecessary for the catechism, but even though we believe in the freedom of religion and uphold the freedom of religion, there needs to be a certain balance. Um, so the right, the catechism says, the right to religious liberty can of itself be neither unlimited nor limited only by a public order received in a positivist or naturalist manner. So there's a due limit. So on the one hand, we have to respect common good, the common good of society. And so there may be, you know, we can't just let any, you know, so, I mean, logically you think like if someone was sacrificing children, you know, as part of their religion or something, you know, like some sort of wild, you know, wild practice that, you know, may not be good for the common good. On the other hand, um, we, you know, it's not really up to the public order to just impose things, impose limits on, on the exercise of religion either. And I think um, perhaps a good example, and it, you know, it may be a little touchy, but, you know, I think in the state of Ohio, where the governor requested that churches close um, during the, the COVID scare, the COVID issue, you know, on the one hand, so that, you know, like closing churches may be necessary, you know, may be a, a necessary restriction um, for public you know, for the common good, you know, in order to avoid this infection. Um, the same thing happened during the Spanish flu that many jurisdictions closed down churches or, you know, kind of forbade public worship. Um, but it's better if it not come from the secular authority, but from the response of the church rather than something imposed upon um by the pub, you know, by a public order, that the church kind of see the, you know, the need, the need for this um, herself. So I, th that may be a good example, like in a pandemic, where there has to be a certain limit to religious freedom in order to uphold the common good. Um, the other kind of restriction, though, is you know, like sometimes it's. Um, overly restrictive. So like just for any sort of naturalistic or positivistic reason, religion may be limited. And that's not what, you know, you know, the church wants a, wants society to kind of, or at least the civil order, the public order, to stay out of that kind of realm. So it seems to me what, what Ohio did during the COVID thing is a good example of that balance 
between, yeah, a limit to um, the exercise of religion, but in the right way, you know, that it came kind of voluntarily rather than imposed by means of public order. Um, so it's, um, I mean, 2109, I don't know if the governor read it or not, paragraph 2109, but it, it does provide, a, I think, a good kind of explanation for, for how, how to do these things. As we said, the third part of this um, commandment is you shall have no other gods before you. So the first one was really to accept the Lord your God. The second one was to um, worship the Lord your God. The third kind of subset of this is that you shall have no other gods before you. So clearly superstition is forbidden. Um, a superstition is defined as the deviation of religious feelings and of practices this feeling imposes. It can even affect authentic worship when one attributes an importance to some way magical to certain practices otherwise lawful or necessary. So um, to attribute the efficacy of prayers or of sacramental signs to their more external performance apart from the interior dispositions that they demand is to fall into superstition. So we can even abuse the sacraments if we begin to see them. Um, you know, all I have to do is go through this thing and, some, you know, things are going to be right. But rather than that fully internal disposition. Um, I think it's, it's a corrective. I mean, of course we know that the sacraments work ex opere operato, that by doing the work, the work gets done. Um, the, um, and so, you know, when we baptize a child, even if the parents aren't the best in the world um, or the most intentional in the world, and certainly the child himself does not have, has not made a personal act of faith, we nonetheless believe that the graces of baptism are conferred, although there may be blocks or obexes to them doing you know doing that so what i would say is we th what this this abuse of the sacraments would be if i believed that a child would be baptized um without and there would be no blocks to the graces there i mean we have to recognize that there could be internal there has to be that internal openness for someone to receive a sacrament which is why we prepare people the sacraments you know we don't just you know have them just go through you know without any catechesis or preparation um, idolatry certainly is um, contrary to this aspect um, it not only refers to false pagan worship um, but it remains really a constant temptation to faith it consists in divinizing those things which are not God, to making God those things that aren't God. Now, we hear this quite often that, you know, it might be honors. Um, it might be, I mean, it might be demons themselves. It might be power, pleasure, one's race, one's ancestors, one's identity. I might even throw in one's 
sexual orientation, one's state, um, one's money, all these different things. Um, the idea is is that you are, in a sense, making something divine. And, you know, when we talk about the pagan religions, wherever they may be, even, you know, Native American, various animist religions in Africa, throughout the Americas and Asia, um, and then, you know, like the classic pagan religions, the Greeks, the Romans, the Norse, um, the Celts, and these kind of things, it usually was a, a divinizing, a making a divine of natural forces. So there's a sun god, so therefore the sun must be god, you know. Or there's a moon god, therefore moon must be god. Or, you know, there's a love god, so romantic love is divine, you know. So th that's, you know, we kind of, om we don't, without naming it, that's kind of what we fall into when we name these human forces, when we allow them to kind of have um, a divine or a, a significance so much so that they're the kind of the priority of our life. Um, the, uh, this commandment also forbades divination and magic or sorcery. So divination is recourse to Satan or to a demon or even the conjuring up of the dead or other um, false, you know, supposedly false practices to unveil the future so that we might come to know the future. Um, this includes consulting horoscopes, astrology, palm reading, interpretation of omens and lots, um, clairvoyance, the recourse to mediums, um, all of these different things. And then there's magic and sorcery. So while divination is trying to figure out the future through these things, magic and sorcery is trying to use these sort of occult powers for one's service over others or for oneself. So wearing of charms, um, these kind of different things, spells, whatnot. Then there's um, spiritism, which often implies divination or magical practice. Um, the church warns the faithful against it. So um, spiritism is usually a recourse to um, um, traditional medicine or traditional practices, but invokes spirits or powers. So, um, you know, it's, it's something also to be cautious about. I think in approaching um, certain forms of medicine, um, there is a possibility of spiritism, you know, this sort of appeal to. So one just needs to, I think, be careful um, in these in these things. Um, irreligion is also um, a form of 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 not of having other gods, and forms of ir irreligion are tempting God, which. Um, consists in putting his goodness and almighty power to the test. Sacrilege, which is profaning or treating unworthy the sacraments or other liturgical items, uh, most especially the Eucharist. Um, 
And then semony, which is buying or selling of spiritual things. And then atheism is another, and atheism and agnosticism. The um, atheism, and there are different types of atheism in our own day. Um, the Second Vatican Council considered it one of the major issues that the church was facing in the modern age. It may be what we call a practical materialism, which basically restricts everything to space and time, what can be seen and observed. There's atheistic humanism, which essentially makes the human the primary agent. Um, it considers man to be an end to himself and the sole maker with supreme control of his own history. And then there is um, a, a form of atheism that looks for liberation through economic and social liberation. That's more like Marxist atheism. <clears throat> but, you know, we think about economics. I mean, it could be that it's through wealth that I liberate myself and my own personal wealth through capitalism or through redistribution of wealth that once we are able to ensure everyone has um, what they need that then will be liberated. Um, but, you know, it, it takes also, there's much, there's um, newer forms of this kind of um, Marxist liberation atheism. And that is, a, you know, that races or genders, um, if they are allowed to be enfranchised or empowered or, um, you know, all of their, all of the abuse is eliminated and they're liberated, that that, um, you know, that, that is supreme in some sense, um, rather than it's Jesus Christ who is the source of our liberation. Um, so there is, at times, trajectories in um, social movements that we're seeing that can have an atheistic dimension to it where they're, they're really not looking to God as the source of liberation, but rather through an agenda. Now, they may be, just like Marxism, they may be based on a legitimate concern that you know there are certain people or certain workers who were being abused or are being abused or you know, are not being supported in our economic system and their dignity is not being respected. In the same way, in the political realm, um, throughout most of human history, women and minorities have not been respected, you know, and that's a legitimate issue that needs to be addressed. But we have to make sure that we don't fall into almost an, an atheistic trap that that, that that political process is itself sufficient or the means only by which, you know, that alone is going to be liberation. The um, idea then also of atheism is that for the most part, well, I shouldn't say for the most part, but atheism also can be, um, one can fall into atheism um, with sort of a diminished culpability, a diminished responsibility, we might say, because of the situation that they might find themselves in. 
Um, so it may be because they were careless, someone was careless in the instruction of the faith, um, or they presented the, the teaching of the faith falsely, um, or that there were real moral or religious or social failings. So, you know, a lot of people fall into these sort of atheistic liberation movements because the church has not done enough to, to speak out, you know, to, to stand up. Um, Often atheism is based on a false conception of human autonomy. Um, exaggerated to the point of refusing any dependence on God. Yet to acknowledge God is in no way to oppose the dignity of the human person. And we we hit that when we talked about the act of faith. Again, at the be very beginning of the catechism, the submission of faith is something very human. It's not a denial of our humanity. We also have mention here of agnosticism, which is not the outright denial of God, um, but rather one refrains from denying or accepting his existence. Um, they make no judgment about God's existence. But in reality, it can be because of indifferentism. You really just don't care about God or the things of God, or really a, a, a practical atheism. We talk this phrase, practical atheism, which is is something that I think even you know church-going people can fall into, which is basically that we don't really think about God, or that God's not really a relevant part of our life except in certain certain parts. You know, when I come to mass on Sunday. Finally, with the first commandment, um, we have this, you shall not make for yourself a graven image. While it's clear that the Old Testament forbade, at least in, you know, in Exodus and Deuteronomy's um, Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, it does forbid graven image. However, throughout, in the same books, God instructs Moses to create images. So, for instance... Um, the bronze serpent, which is in Numbers 21, 4 through 9. Um, the Ark of the Covenant and the, and the cherubim, which were above the Ark of the Covenant. So he must mean something more than artistic rendering and, you know, and things like that. Even more so with the coming of Jesus Christ, who is the full revelation of the Ten Commandments, who reveals to us what they are, the church in her understanding at the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which is Nicaea in 787, uh, Nicaea 2, says that because Jesus Christ has taken on flesh, because of the incarnate word, um, images of Christ and also of his mother, the angels and the saints, can be venerated. By becoming incarnate, the Son of God introduced a new economy of images. He himself has, has taken on an image. He has an image now. He can be depicted because he had a true body. But it's always reminded that the honor that we render to the images passes to the one that it's depicting. And whoever venerates an image venerates the person portrayed in it.
And even, you know, even the pagans, I mean, some pagans believe that the god actually dwelt in the idol. Um, and, you know, just like God really was in the Ark of the Covenant, or, you know, God really is the Eucharist, you know, this this sort of idea that, you know, it's not just a symbol pointing to. But a lot of the pagans realized that the statue really wasn't the god, that it was pointing, you know. So this was a statue of Jupiter pointing to the thunder god or, you know, whoever it might be. Um, so even when we, when we kind of think of idols as they think that the idol is their god, which, you know, Psalms talks about that. And that was very common. I don't want to dismiss that. That was a very common understanding in the Greek world or in the um in the pagan world, but not all pagans saw the idols as the god themselves, but as something pointing to like an icon pointing to. Um the problem is is that those were false gods that they were worshiping. You know, they a human that they were or a a, a natural power that they were giving divine worship to. So that's why it's not just um, that you know it's permissible to use images because of the incarnation. We also have to make sure, and this was in the catechism part, that in the sacramental part of the catechism, that we recognize that it's worship. We we render worship to God, you know, as opposed to um, veneration to. Our Lady, or you know, devo- devotion to Our Lady, or whatnot. So there's a connection there. Um, to go with the second commandment, which is, "You shall not take the Lord your God in the name of the Lord your God in vain," for you have heard that it was said to the men of old, "You shall not swear falsely." But I say to you, do not swear at all. So. This really upholds the dignity of God's revelation, this commandment, that God has revealed himself, he's revealed his name, um, and that this name really expresses the very essence of God. It is sort of a summary of his, of his revelation. When we talk about the name of God, it's, of course, the revealed name, um, Yahweh, um, I am who am, also the revealed name, Jesus Christ, um, it is the name of God that, you know, has been revealed. Um, but also in general, um, the the name, you know, God, the word God, all of these, you know, these, even Lord, all of these different things that we use for for God, we should be careful in the way that we use use them because they all, in the sense, are are revealed names of God. Um. And we're also, in in honoring this commandment, not just honoring the dignity of revelation that God's revealed himself, we're also honoring the um, dignity of his mystery, that there is something, that even though he's given us his name, it is a name that transcends all other names and that um, is not fully comprehensible, that we really don't have power over. Um, we honor this by confessing our faith by not abusing God's name um, we do this by being faithful to promises 
So promises made to others in God's name, we have to fall, we have to be faithful to. We also avoid blasphemy, which is basically um, saying or uttering anything inwardly or outwardly, words of hatred, reproach, or defiance in speaking ill of God, in failing to respect towards him in one's speech, or in misusing his name. Um, also with oaths, um, oaths which misuse God's name, though without the intention of blasphemy, show lack of respect for the Lord. This also um, is the mag- any kind of magical use of the divine name. So there, you know, there may be in the sense of making an oath of God that, you know, not just like if we make a promise in God's name, we need to be faithful to it, but there also may be false oaths that we make in the name of God. Um, be, you know, not only does this, um, I think this commandment reflect the dignity of God's revelation, but it also reflects our ability to cooperate and to know and to have received God's revelation. So it also is protecting our response to this too. Um, so one of one of the things I think is make to make sure also that we don't take um, false oaths. So perjury, you know, there are at times where we have to legitimately um, promise something in God's name, you know, for very serious things. So for instance, if we're making a profession, um, you know, as lawyers or as politicians or doctors or, you know, they make a profession, you know, in God's name that they're going to do this. Or, um, you know, like in a trial, you know, if we're a witness that there is going to be a promise that we make in God's name. So the key is to honor those things. So there are times where we, where it is permissible. But the Lord also, you know, in the gospel, we know that he um, tells us that um, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't have to make oaths in the sense that our yes should be yes and our no should be no. Um, so it really roots us firmly in the commandment we're going to hear about later about lying, you know, that, that really we should, you know, even though at times we may have to invoke the name of the Lord in a promise, um, or in an oath, we we should be living a life that people don't need that from us. Um, and then a very interesting thing that concludes and concludes our section for today is that you know God has revealed His name, but we've also received the name by our baptism. We're adopted sons and daughters of our heavenly Father. We, we received a Christian name um, at our baptism, even if it's not the name of a saint or a biblical figure. By our baptism, this name has become Christian. Um, and so we have to respect that name, too. You know, we have to, um, and we do that by being faithful. And I think the, the idea is that just as the name of God reveals part of his identity, um, we are given an identity as Christians. We're given a name by God. And I think that's um, kind of the beautiful reflection um, to end with in this section of the catechism is that, um, you know, um, 
the Lord has revealed himself. He, of course, it's still quite mysterious. We don't know everything about him. We never will know everything about him. It's inexhaustible. But in being united to him, we've entered into that mystery. We've become a part of that mystery. In a sense, our name has kind of been united to his name. And it 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 reemphasizes, again, this important theme, which I think could structure all of Catholic morality and all of this part of the catechism, which is the dignity of the human person. Because God has revealed himself and allowed us to come to know that through baptism, we now have an even greater dignity. And our name, our identity is based on that dignity. So, This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.